0: Hi, this is Rick Emmett of Triumph, and uh, I'm here uh, with Mako, and I'm going to do the uh, 250th uh, episode of Talkin' Blues.
1: I read somewhere, and I'm always hesitant to quote things that I read on the internet, but that that your name is spelled the way it is because of uh, an error in the album cover. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, uh, that was... Uh, I mean, uh, the, the full story of things is, you know, I was born a Richard, and then my family called me Rick and Ricky. And uh, when I went to school, uh, I became a Richard again. And I, everybody that ever knew me from school always called me Richard. And uh, then when I got into my teenage years... Uh, and started playing guitar and being on the track team and playing football and all those things. I got the uh, nickname Rocket, which was a common nickname that uh, other Richards would often get uh, (laughs) because of Rocket Richard. Yeah. Uh, But when I uh, met the guys in Triumph and joined Triumph, I was a Rick by then to them and I was Rocket almost right away to them. And, um, Yeah, the story about how the name got sort of changed, the spelling, was that the first Triumph album was coming out. Mike Levine was the producer. He called me up one day to double-check to make sure that the credit was going to read correctly, vocals, 6- and 12-string guitars, all that stuff. And he had recently borrowed some cash off me when we'd been out on the road playing some gigs. And when he paid me back, he wrote me a check. And on the check, he'd spelled my name R-I-C Emmett. And I I said to him, Mike, I hope you spell my name right on the credits because it's not R-I-C, it's got a K on the end. And he went, (laughs) oh, okay. So then when the jackets got printed, and I think they did a run of about 10,000 records to start the first run. Yeah, it was R-I-K-E-M-M-E-T-T. And I went, oh, my God. And it was was 10,000 jackets, and I went, well... So that's okay. You don't have to throw them in the garbage. I'll just, I'll change my, I'll spell my name different. So that's the, that's the story.
1: Wow. So, I mean, obviously you grew up using multiple names, so you were probably used to using different names. I mean, this probably wasn't as big a shock to somebody who always had one single name, but that must've been a little devastating.
0: It wasn't a big deal at all. And, and, um, that the whole thing of having different names, it's been an interesting thing in my life. Like, I never liked if people called me Ricky if they hadn't earned it. Like, to me, if you were going to use the diminutive form of my name, you had to be, like, family or you had to be somebody that really knew me well. So I didn't like it when, like, you know, in a meet and greet line, somebody would get to the front and they'd say, hey, Ricky, how's it going?" I'm going, you know, you did not get to call me Ricky. You know, that's for people that, that have earned it, you know. And uh,
1: right.
0: I, and I, Rocket was always one that was uh, a, a very familiar sort of like my wife calls me Rocket a lot of the time, and uh, the guys in the band Gill and Mike always pretty much called me Rocket. They never called me Rick or or they never called me Richard. But <laughs> I would do a thing like say play a gig uh, where I was doing um, I was doing a lot of Soft Cedars in the last you know, say five years of my career. And so old high school pals would come out and see me, people that knew me in grade 11 or something, and they'd be in the meet and greet line. And when they'd see me, they'd go, oh, hi, Richard. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I hardly ever hear that, except when I do hear it, I know, hey, this must be somebody that knew me in high school, you know. So, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, the, the the misspelling of my name in a way and this is sort of taking this on another tangent, but you know the way there's people in show business and they're like Madonna or they're Sting or they're you know Alice Cooper, yeah. like they have a stage name. And in a way, in a very kind of modest Canadian humble way, R.I.K. was kind of my stage persona. That was the, who I became. Like my mother would never sign a, a birthday card or a Christmas card or anything, and and. Right, R I K. She always—it was always R I C K because she thought of R I K as you know some bizarre affectation, you know, of show business. And so, you know, it's—it's it's been an interesting thing to have it in my life that I can think of this R I K guy as something that got invented in 1975. And I've just recently made a deal with a, a publisher where I'm doing a book of poetry coming out this year, and and then next year. Or a year after that, or whenever it's finished, they're doing a memoir. And uh, I had a discussion with my editor, and I said, you know, should I reclaim my name, like the full name, Richard Gordon Emmett? Should should I reclaim that? And he said, well, he said you can do it, like uh, on the uh, on the title page inside the book, but on the outside cover, we're using R. I. K. because that's that's who everybody knows. You know, that's who the world knows. They don't know Richard Gordon Emmett. That'll only confuse them. And I go, okay, no, you're right. I get it. You know, totally. So, Rik is my showbiz thing. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So that was a long story, but uh, that's so, why we're here, right?
1: And, and yeah, but so when you and also this this is the name that that becomes famous. So you have to now do autographs. Was that weird?
0: Uh, no, no. I you know, I mean. The the whole thing about, like, I'll tell you, I have a good story about autographs. I was once, uh, I gave away the um, Vezina Trophy at the uh, NHL Awards in 1987, and uh, I got to do that with Lanny McDonald, and then when you do these things, you get to go to a fancy dinner, and my wife and I got to sit at a table with uh, Shannon Tweed, the Playboy Bunny of the Year, and... and you know, and we were right beside a table where Gordy Howe was seated with his sons, Mark and Marty and, and his wife, Colleen. And, and so at a certain point, you know, I, I sort of sidled over and they, they, these kinds of awards banquets, they got like, it'll be like, you know, um, construction contractors from Sudbury that have made a lot of money and they bring their kids and they got their little boys dressed in tuxedos and the boys are kind of running around the whole time getting autographs from everybody you know and uh, including playboy bunnies and rock stars so um gordy house beside me and at one point i take my program and i sort of you know slide my chair back and lean over and i say excuse me gordy uh, you know i I don't mean to interrupt but and i know this is a pain but can you could you please you know sign an autograph for my dad and gordy looks at me and he says look son if somebody asks you for your autograph you you should always be very very happy to do it uh because they're paying you a huge compliment as he's signing the autograph he's giving me a lesson in (laughs) you know like showbiz integrity kind of right and i'm I'm thinking this is why wayne gretzky likes him it's because he's kind of like everybody's grandpa (laughs) he you know like giving you (laughs) giving you life lessons so like i'm going and i'm you know it kind of had the aura to it of like, you know, he sees this long haired rock star and he's thinking this guy, you know, he needs somebody to straighten him out, you know, so Gordy's going to straighten me out. So it was great. <laughs> it was like, it was a, but I I always had that feeling in any case, I was never, uh you know, hardly ever unhappy except to say, you know, maybe as I got old and crotchety in a meet and greet, when you're dealing with your 137th person, you know, and they're starting to tell you their life story. You know, I would sometimes, you know, get a little bit uh, short-tempered, but generally speaking, I was always happy to sign autographs for people, and and uh, I always felt that it was, as Gordy said, somebody's paying you a compliment. You know, they're 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 showing you that you matter in their life, and that's a cool thing.
1: So I wonder, when you were growing up, was there athletes or musicians i mean obviously gordy Howe was one but i mean was there other people you looked up to that you can understand how a fan might feel when when they come to you and ask for an autograph
0: oh sure i mean uh i once had a thing happen where i was in seattle and i was doing uh, the uh, national guitar summer workshop program for a friend of mine uh, who ran that for a while and um I was, the hotel I was in, Steve Howe, the guitar player from Yes, we we were in the uh, dining room and uh, Brian and I were sitting there having dinner and there was nobody else in the hotel. And then um, all of a sudden this guy starts walking into the, the restaurant and I go, Hey Brian, I think that's Steve Howe. And Steve Howe had been like a huge kind of role model hero of mine. So I, you know, uh, I, you know, screwed my courage to the sticking place and I got up and I went to him and I said, excuse me, are are you Steve Howell from Yes? And he goes, yes, I am. And I said, would you like to join us for, for dinner? You know, we'd be happy to have you as our guest. And he said, yeah, all right. So, you know, I got to sit with him and I was literally like, you know, an eight year old boy, <laughs> you know, like so afraid of what I was going to say and how I was going to say it. And because this guy had been like a huge hero of, uh, to me, you know, uh, as a teenager growing up and stuff. Um, and I, I've heard Alex Lifeson talk about when he met Jimmy page and, you know, feeling that same kind of fumbly, you know, falling all over yourself kind of. And so I, I know that feeling. And so I always try to put people at ease and, and, uh, you know, I always just try to do the best I can. <laughs> but, when I'm feeling it myself and it it, it happens, but, um, you know, in the end, when you get to know celebrities and heroes, and sometimes when you get to meet heroes, they don't necessarily turn out to be, you know, everything that you've made them up to be inside your own head, you know? So I, I, you know, I I think, uh, I've, I've always got to try and be an open and generous kind of personality. Uh, when I'm dealing with other people, because my life has been predicated on the idea of uh, offering something to people. Uh, I, I, there's no, like, they don't have to like me. I have to try and get them to like what it is that I do. And so you're always kind of uh, trying to be honest with people and trying to work straightforward towards them. And, and um, so, you know, uh, social courtesy matters, social graces matter. All of that enters into it, you know.
1: I wonder when you learned that. Because, I mean, when I read your interviews and and view old interviews, I mean, I certainly get that. You're very open and very honest. But when when did that occur to you, that this is the way you should be? Or is it just the way you are?
0: I, th- I think, um, like, first of all, you know, part of... <laughs> Every answer that you're going to get now is going to be steeped in the fact that I've been, you know, working on this memoir day after day after day. So there's certain things where psychologically, you know, uh, you're really doing a lot of deep digging. So, you know, all of my answers are going to end up going way off on a tangent and then coming back. Uh, when I was it's a little, yeah, when I was a little kid, uh, I was very shy, extremely shy, and. Um, the other side of the coin was that I was also fairly talented in a lot of ways. Like when I would do drawings in kindergarten, the teachers would be going like, "Oh, wow, this is amazing. Oh, this is incredible." And of course I could sing. Even when I was really little, my mom would drag me off to the choir at church. When I was like 7, 8 years old, you know, uh I would be the guy that would have to star in the church christmas pageant because you know i could sing songs and i could memorize things and spit them back and you know so these things i had all the shyness but my mother would say no no no, no. you have this talent so you got to perform so the the whole thing of being extremely shy but also being really talented then it was kind of like well now you're going to be all the kinds of things that happen to kids, you know, um, I would be on sports teams in school and I would go and run in the, the district races, but I would win. And so then there would be this big deal in my classroom where it was like, Oh, Richard Emmett's going to get the crest. And we're going to talk about this. He's going to get the trophy and, you know, blah, 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 all this stuff. So now you're sort of being turned into a kind of a, a public figure, even though, it's not necessarily what comes naturally to you. So now you're just going to adopt this whole thing of uh, wearing masks and, and, and being an entertainer and learning how to be polite and learning how to be courteous and learning how to say the right things and be the right kind of, you know, so, so that you get along with authority because you're now dealing with, uh, you know, teachers and, and play directors and choir masters and, you know, uh, coaches on sports teams. And you're getting along with all of these people and you're being put in positions of sort of responsibility. You know, you go to Cubs and Scouts and it's like, well, no, you're going to be the leader of the six in Cubs or the the pack in, 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 in Scouts. You're, you're going to be sort of the the representative, you know. You're going to be the class president, you know, all of this stuff. So... You start to develop a sense of, I don't know, public kind of um, uh, decorum. I guess is the word.
1: Right. Were you a confident kid?
0: No, no, I was. Uh, well, <laughs> I I would say I was. Uh, I had two sides to my personality, two strong sides to my personality. One of them was being an extremely shy kid. The other side of it was being as as eventually a very cocky, arrogant, uh, kind of adolescent because I had all of this talent and ability that was then being, um, constantly kind of reinforced that it was like, well, you know, this guy's wow. He's, he's talented. Look, when I started playing guitar, I was, you know, one of the better guitar players in my peer group within the first few months. So, and of course, I could, I could already sing. So it was like, well, who's going to front the, the basement band that we're all having as, as 11-year-olds and 12-year-olds? Well, Rick, Rick is going to be the guy. You know. So I, I ended up having this kind of dual thing of. Internally, I was shy, but externally, I was becoming pretty cocky.
1: When this confident guitar player, because I keep reading about you in in like folk houses, being a singer songwriter, um, and I know that your brother got you the Segovia album, and that got you into classical music, and I I know guitar was a big part of you. I don't know at what point you decided which path you wanted to go.
0: Well. You know, sometimes I think it's a question of uh, sometimes you're choosing the path and sometimes the path is choosing you. So a lot of it has to do with opportunity. Um, You know, somebody says, hey, do you want to come and sing at this coffee house? And you're not getting paid or anything. And you go, yeah, sure. And so you go and do it and they go, oh, wow, this is great. You know, do you want to come to this high school and do one next week? You know, so that part of your life is developing, but by the same token, you know, somebody's saying, Hey, um, you know, do you want to be in this rock band and you want to play these things? And you know, oh, we're going to have a a dance at the community center on Thursday night. And, you know, will you come and play guitar and sing with a band at that thing? So, you know, none of these things are necessarily turning into a career. They're all pretty much still, Hobbies and just, you know, weird little things that you're doing when you're a kid. But then eventually you get to a point where somebody's saying, Hey, you know, my uncle has a a, a polka band. Do you want to come and sit in on that? And, and uh, like you just got to play, oom, da, oom, da, oom, da, you know, for an hour and a half or two hours. But, um, you know, you'll get paid. We'll give you a hundred bucks. And so you kind of go, Ooh, you know. So now the whole thing of electric guitar side man working in a gig playing in wedding bands you know that's as lucrative as you know the rock band thing that you do at Jesse Ketchum public school on a friday night once a month when you're in grade 12 or 13 and you know you work for the door and in the end of the night there's enough money to buy a pizza and everybody gets a slice and you know you go okay you know, what path is choosing me now? Well, the one where you can make more money is clearly the one where, (laughs) you know, you're going to start. So you're starting to think of yourself as a jobbing musician. But, you know, one thing leads to another. And, you know, eventually you get a job playing in a rock band. Like the first steady job I got playing in a rock band six nights a week with Justin Page I'm making 175 bucks a week and uh, I'm wearing full face makeup and a weird costume. And, you know, I'm playing <laughs> David Bowie and Lou Reed songs. And, and of course, Paige, he had an album deal with Capitol. So that was the first job, you know, full-time job I had as a gigging rock guitar player. But, you know, and once you're doing it, it's like, I guess this is who I am. I guess this is what I, this is what I do. I'm a rock guitar player, you know, because I get paid every week to do it. So the the opportunity ends up being the thing that chooses the road for me, you know, and of course there I am, I'm wearing makeup and stuff. Back to the other question about masks and stuff. It's like, what could suit me better? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I don't have to be myself. I can adopt this this character this this costume and i can be that guy you know so
1: i i wonder but but was there any other options i mean did you think you were going to be a musician and that was it no matter if it was going to be jazz or doing weddings or whatever or did you have anything else that you thought you might do pursue
0: well i had uh i'd spent a semester being a teaching assistant at Lord Dufferin public school in Toronto. So, and that was in the special education classes. And I I had taught music lessons and, and, um, uh, you know, private guitar lessons to people. I'd spent summers being a camp counselor and then also being a teacher in a, in a drop-in center music school thing that happened one summer. So I would had experiences where, Maybe I was going to be a teacher, uh, but, you know, while I was working and playing uh, musician-type gigs, I, well, I, I'm going to take a step back because the, the better way to answer your question is this, that when I was a teenager from, you know, a, 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 an adolescent, a preteen, a teenager, mm-hmm. from the ages of about 9 or 10 until I was 16 or seventeen, seventeen. 17. I wanted to be an athlete. That's what I wanted to be. I, I wanted to, to do sports. But in the, when in my senior year of high school football, I got my knee really badly torn up. And uh, I was never going to be an elite athlete anymore because I didn't have a, an anterior, anterior cruciate ligament. So like my knee had been, the cartilage had been destroyed and stuff and like it had been ruined. So that was the thing that sort of said okay what do you want to do with your life and I at 17 I was going well I I I'm not going to be able to play sports for a living but I can play music and that's the thing that was the real determining factor I wanted to play and music was something that I could play I didn't want to work I wanted to play and I would have been happy being a a a side man in a working jobbing band. I would have been happy being in a country band or, or I would, I would have gone wherever I could make the most money, (laughs) you know, (laughs) that's because in the end, what I wanted to do was uh, move out and, and move in with my girlfriend and I, you know, wanted to marry her. And uh, that's what I wanted. You know, I wanted that more than I wanted, you know, some sort of specific style of music or some specific kind of uh, you know music career. Uh, like the career was only going to help fuel my my life with my wife.
1: <laughs> oh, that's interesting. So, would you have said like was if was that the goal? Like, would you have like you know? Because so many people would grow up and think, oh, I want to make it big in music. I mean, maybe not all, but. I, I find the true musicians don't think that way they just want to play. But I wonder if you had a goal other than wanting to move in with your girlfriend. No. Musically.
0: Uh well, I, I always loved music um for very pure aesthetic kinds of reasons. So, and I loved singing in the choir, I loved playing in the school orchestra, I played violin for 4 years. I loved classical guitar, I loved jazz guitar as much as I loved rock and roll. I loved rock and roll too, but you know, I didn't I didn't discriminate that much about what it was that I loved. I if I loved it, I I loved it. <laughs> and and I didn't think, right, I have to love this to the exclusion of all else. I, you know, I I I embraced the whole thing. So, um and I still feel that way about music. So I never got into rock and roll because I wanted the sex and the drugs and the rock and roll. I got into the rock and roll because I loved the rock and roll. I loved the music part of it. The sex part of it I had very I had no interest. The the, the drugs part of it, I had zero interest. You know, I, I loved the music. And so that made me a bit of an oddball. Because a lot of people that get into that end of the business from a performance point of view, they're all about wanting the fame and they're all about wanting the money, you know. And that stuff, I was like, yeah, I'll take it or leave it, you know. Okay, okay I'll take it. Thank you. It's great. But I don't need it, you know. It's not what I'm here for.
1: But I would assume that for a band like Triumph to get to the level that they did... I mean, you must have worked very hard to get to that. Right? Yes. Like it's, that that just doesn't happen.
0: No, you're right. And I had uh, the right partners for that. You know, I was the right thing in the right place at the right time for that band because they needed a guy who could write and sing and play and front the trio that they were the ones that had the vision and the and the business plan and the marketing plan and, you know. That they were the ones that had the, the the business chops. I was the junior partner who was going to front the thing and provide the talent. So, you know, that was the arrangement, and it worked out really, really well. Um, you know, I got to do what I did best, and they were doing what they did best, and, uh, you know, I was, <laughs> you know, taking orders. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Okay, so when it becomes a business like that, because I presume very quickly when you attain that level of success, that it's not just about music. It becomes merchandising. It becomes tours. It becomes this huge machine. Do you resent that? Like, are you going through this going, I'm not sure if I'm comfortable with this?
0: Uh, Well, yes and no. I mean, first of all, the paychecks are great. (laughs) And the career is, is going pretty good. And so you know um and I mean it's all happening sort of it's, it's it's in some ways it's like you're on a roller coaster and you can't get off you know it, you have to it, you're in for the ride you know and so that's part of it and another part of it is there's things that are happening like in 1980 81 I got an invitation to write for Guitar Player magazine and that's like to me, guitar player was like the Bible. It was like that was an amazing thing that that the Triumph career was was you know making happen in my life. So I was like so happy to 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 be able to do that. And um, so you know one thing is sort of aiding and abetting another thing. And the, another point I want to make in answer to this question is, and I want to make sure that I'm very clear about this. In the early stages of the Triumph career, I would say the first six or seven years of it, it was like Three Musketeers. You know, we got along and everybody was willing to make sacrifices and compromises. And it was, it was a really, and it was, there were a lot of laughs. It was a really strong kind of a partnership. If it had been any kind of a startup, you know, like uh, the way they, there's internet startups now and digital companies and, and you, and, you know, people are very entrepreneurial. There was a real entrepreneurial kind of brotherhood that formed. uh, And it was a very positive kind of a thing, which I think contributed to its success. We loved to laugh. And there were a lot of good jokes like triumph had a very internally, privately, it, it did not take itself seriously at all. It was like this, can you believe this is happening kind of, you know, uh, camaraderie, you know? Uh, so, you know, um, what you're talking about, the disenchantment that came later, you know, that came and the, the feeling like I was kind of committed inside a machinery that, uh, was making me unhappy that didn't happen until you know the i would say the ninth tenth year the the, the doubts started to creep in and then you know by the 13th year i was out
1: <laughs> which is still a long time
0: you bet that's longer than the beatles <laughs>
1: <laughs> now in that time you wrote some amazing songs which has become the soundtrack of our lives um how do you look back on those songs?
0: Um, I mean, I'm grateful for them, uh, certainly. And and you know, uh, I mean, I've retired from touring now, but you know, when when I would play even solo gigs or duo gigs with Dave Dunlop, I, I would have to play the sort of the Evergreen songs, were like Magic Power, Lay It On The Line, Hold On, Fight The Good Fight, Ordinary Man, Suitcase Blues. I would play those songs every night and I was happy to do it. I loved those songs, you know? Um, So, and I think uh, there was, uh, again, you know, the whole thing of sort of luck of being the right thing in the right place at the right time, those songs became successful because of RCA records really sort of pushing Independent promo in the late '70s and the early '80s, and that we became sort of darlings of MTV. And Mike Levine really knew what he was doing with FM radio mm-hmm. promotion. And so th- there was there was a lot of hard work and a lot of luck. And they were my songs. I was lucky that those songs got that kind of um, I don't know,
1: you know, push. Did you really see it as luck, though? Because, I mean, it's an interesting concept that I've talked to a lot of musicians about. And and I understand the idea of luck and timing. Um, but obviously, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears went into that. And it's oftentimes luck happens because of all the work that you put into it.
0: Yes. Yeah. It's a, it preparation meets opportunity. Yeah. That's, that's luck. Yes, of course. But it's still luck. It's still a question of, you know, like, and I played a lot of sports and so sports metaphors and, uh, you know, they they pop into my head. Like there was a a junior uh, gold world hockey championship game last night, you know, Mm -hmm. and, you know, the, the American guy tips a puck in front of the net and it goes past the goalie and it's a goal. The Canadian guy does it and it hits a post, you know, like in a certain way, sometimes you just kind of need that little tiny extra bit of being the right thing in the right place at the right time luck. You know, Kawhi Leonard shoots the basketball and it bounces around on the rim and it bounces and it bounces and it bounces and it goes in and he's a champion. But some guys shoot it and it bounces and it bounces and it bounces and it bounces out, you know? it's That's, sometimes you need the bounces, Uh, in order for something to align, you know, with the cosmos. (laughs) So, you know, I and I think there's, you can be arrogant about this and think, no, 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 I'm so great that I make my own luck. And you go, well, okay. But, you know, talk to me again when you're 82 and you've got cancer because that's going to happen, you know, to like, you you think that life is just always about being able to be the master of your own destiny. That's not the truth. And when I was a young cocky man, I you know, there, there's a lyric in the song, Fight the Good Fight. You're the master of your own destiny. So give and take the best that you can. That's true only up to an extent. Like, it's not true 100% of the time. You can't always be the master of your own destiny. Some little babies get leukemia. It happens, you know. Some people get hit by a bus. It happens. So how do you reconcile that in your life? And I think humility is one of the things that you have to acknowledge.
1: Is that a difficult thing to be aware of when all of a sudden you become a rock star and you were playing in front of 250,000 people? (laughs) Or you go on tour and you sell out the whole tour? Yes. Like, is, is is it still simple to keep everything into perspective?
0: No, it's not simple and it's not easy, but it needs to be done. It has to be done. And if you don't do it yourself, eventually life is going to do it for you. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, let, let's think about this for a second, okay? Like, uh, I'm going to use an example. Robert Plant uh, apparently in the movie almost famous when the uh, singer of the band in that movie is standing on a roof and he's going, I am a golden God. I, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. There, apparently that's Cameron Crowe has said he based that on Robert Plant and him having, you know, this kind of, and uh, Robert Plant will even, you know, admit in in interviews, oh, you know, I was, I was pretty full of myself back in the day. You know, um, but Robert Plant had a, a a child of his drown and die, you know, and how do you come to terms with that if you think you're a golden god? So you know, life is going to have a way of coming along and humbling even the most golden of gods, and uh I think it's important for you know golden gods to realize that.
1: Yeah. What's the greatest lesson you you learned from that experience of fame with Triumph?
0: Oh, you know, I, I think uh, it's hard in interviews when sometimes when people, like when you ask a question, you say, tell me the one thing. <laughs> and I go, yeah, but it's not one thing. You know, that's an easy, right. it's an easy question to ask. And it would be a glib thing for me to answer um but it's not just one thing it's a it's an accumulation of dozens of things you know, and um yeah and like like a lot of times in the interviews you get asked a question and it's an either or, you know, well, do you think it's this or is it that? and you go, No, I don't think life can get boiled down to either or. I really don't like sometimes it's way more things than just you know. One or the other. It's it's not just yes or no. Sometimes it's maybe, you know. Like and honestly, truthfully, I think that's the best answer I can give you to that question. Is in fact that that whole idea of multiplicity and 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 um, complexity. I, I think that is the thing that one has to sort of come to terms with. That's the answer. The answer is not thinking, right, I've got this figured out. It was black or white, and I'm going white. Like, you go, no, I think you've made a mistake there because it's going to be a thousand shades of gray, and the sooner you come to terms with that, the more you're going to realize that's where, you know, uh, and it's not just happiness. It's more like just resolution of things. That's where you'll resolve that the answers exist.
1: Fair enough. Tell me about your songs. You tend to write very positive messages. Yeah. And and so is that, where does that come from? I mean, I've talked to a lot of musicians who say you have to write positive things. Even B.B. King said that to me. Is that is that like a, a philosophy that you have?
0: I mean, yeah. I mean, yes. Uh, although, you know, I mean, I taught songwriting for decades. So, and I would tell songwriters, Look, even if you're writing a really really sad blues, even if you're just, you know, you're you're all you're wanting to write about is darkness and and inky blackness and, you know, death and destruction and horror, you're going to have to light a candle and put it in a window for somebody because that's the thing that'll give your song life beyond the the just the moment of your performance of it, it has to offer people something that that to counterbalance the thing. And I think, having said that, I mean there are blues songs where there there there's nothing happy about the lyric, you know. There's nothing happy about the melody necessarily, but when the song is performed. It now provides a kind of a, oh, I can't think of the right word, Um, uh, catharsis for the performer and for the listener. And so now that's the positive value that the song has. And people go, yeah, even though that song is incredibly sad, like I feel better after because I've connected to that, and so now I, I kind of I have a better, deeper understanding of my sadness. And so you go, ah, so that's the redemptive value of a of a lament, you know, that of a blues of something really, really sad. So you know, mm-hmm. you ask me to trace that back to to myself, and I would say, you know, I mean, I sang choirs, anthems, and I, I you know, that was a lot of the music that I heard when I was young, you know, and then. Just the songs that I loved, the the Beatles, you know, that kind of stuff. You're you're learning that songs are about making connections, you know. So in the end, I think that's what it's all about, that emotional connection. Um, And that's what makes songs good. And so, you know, I always wanted to try and do good songs. So I was looking to try and make those connections.
1: Did you approach the songwriting change when you left Triumph?
0: Oh, for sure, yes. Because, you know, part of writing songs in Triumph, and this had become all too evident over the last few albums, was that, oh, you know, you're writing songs to try and fit the machine. You're trying to write songs that fit the image. And so this goes back to what you were saying about earlier, asking about the unhappiness about being in a box, being in a machine, being in a thing. Like, I went, yeah, I don't want to do that anymore. I I don't want to have to write to image. Now, it's hard to change. Like, the first album I made, when I left, you know, they go, oh, well, you got to, geez, Rick, you know, how about we put you on the cover with a Les Paul and a black leather jacket and, you know, you you play lots of sort of, you know, progressive heavy rock. Like, we need that in order to sell records. And I went, yeah, okay. I, I I, I can't go wholesale. But on that first album, clearly the songs were, they were no longer Triumph songs. They were Rick Emmett songs. And so I could write more as a songwriter and start to establish that personality, which it took three albums. But I eventually got to the point where I was now a songwriter writing my songs, you know, by by the Spiral Notebook record. That's what was happening.
1: Okay, so but at the same time, as 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 time went by, you also delved into a lot of other genres of music, like jazz, like flamenco, like classical. Is that a risky thing to do, or do you do do you not care because you know who your audience is, or it doesn't have anything to do with the audience? It's who you are.
0: Well, you know, um, you're sort of predicating this on the word risky, and. You know, um, wow! How am I going to answer this one? <laughs> I th- I think that uh, if you're going to make music for a living, you're already doing something that's risky. Like you're you're right. you're, you're not doing a nine to five kind of you know job that has uh, uh, a lot of um, you know benefits. <laughs> like it's it, there's nothing safe about it. Uh, and I always felt that the best songs, the best music was always the one where you were putting the most most part of yourself at risk in whatever it was you were offering. And I would tell that to college students of music all the time. You must put yourself at risk in the work. If you're not, if it's not there, if people can't find that in there, then you're not going to um, be able to find an audience, build an audience, and keep an audience. So now back to the idea of risk, inherent in your question is the idea of, well, you have to sort of build up a kind of a a box for yourself and you have to service the box. You got to keep people happy, you know. And if you're Dolly Parton, for example, you know, you do a brilliant job of that. And she has a lifetime career of selling millions and millions of records. Okay. Mm -hmm. I wasn't Dolly Parton. (laughs) I, I never was. And I never wanted to be, I wasn't, you know, a Gene Simmons kind of character. I wasn't, I wasn't even, you know, Billy Joel or, or, you know, I was Rick Emmett. And so I was making decisions and choices. Were those sometimes things that were going to start narrowing my audience down and destroying my own boxes? (laughs) Yes, it was. Uh, and was I doing it willingly? Yes. Like, I once wrote a song called Taste of Steel, and I presented it to my manager at the time. And he said, but Rick, don't you understand, if you do songs like this, like, like what kind of a career do you want? You're going to be playing little jazz clubs, and you're just going to be playing for, like, this is jazz. And you're going to, you know, and I went, I know that's what I want. You're my manager. You know, can't, can't you help me make this happen? And he went, yeah, but no, (laughs) if you want (laughs) to, if you want to do that, you can just do that yourself. Just go ahead and do it. And that was part of the conversations that led me in the end to do classical guitar record swing shift was the second record I did of my own as an indie. And it had taste of steel on it because I was going, yeah, fuck this. Like, fuck the whole idea of having to try and be on billboard and having to try and have bullets on the hit parade. Like I, I'm not going to chase that anymore. I'm just going to do what comes naturally to me. And if it's a jazz song, it's going to be a jazz song. If it's a classical piece, that's what it's going to be. And you know, I'm not gonna limit myself to just being one thing I'm gonna do the things that I can do happily and what and I think well, and you know if it means <laughs> i mean I make jokes on the on the uh, uh cover of my poetry book uh the last sentence of the bio i wrote um- you know I finally found a career thing where I I'll, I'll make less money than doing jazz guitar records <laughs> because you know poetry it, there's no money in writing poetry <laughs> but that's not the point you know the point is that I you know I wanted to be creatively uh you know I I I I wanted to be honest and true and do something creatively uh yeah, honest
1: and true. Well, but when I, you know, if I go back to the earlier Triumph albums, it's not like you you just did rock. I mean, you also did a bit of jazz, a bit of flamenco kind of stuff, like uh, in the city, and that song or the um, Suitcase Blues is kind of jazzy. Yep. So, like, very early on in your career, you had also played that. But I guess further down your career, you decided to pursue that. In a deeper way.
0: Yes, and I wasn't, you know, 25 years old anymore. That's part of it too, you know. Uh, And I I think part of it is, uh, I mean, you know, for in my bio for years there was a quote I can't remember who the guy was, but he was a writer for I think Guitar World magazine, and when they did a feature on me and the thing he wrote, you know, one of the problems with Rick Emmett is he's just too talented for his own damn good. And I went, (laughs) I love that quote. I'm going to use that quote because I think it's kind of the truth. Is that it's not necessarily talent; it's it's more like just an eclectic nature, you know. And if you have that eclectic nature, you're shooting yourself in the foot, you know, because it's not how industry works. It's not how the building of machines work, you know. So, but and I, honestly, I probably wouldn't have had the adult kind of career that I had. After I left Triumph, if I hadn't been in Triumph, if I hadn't already built up a certain base and and you know had a certain kind of notoriety and and uh, credibility established, you know, because it's that's really hard to do to establish credibility and integrity. Like wow, so hard to do, especially in this day and age. Oh my god.
1: Were you ever surprised by your fans and the way they followed? I mean, I would presume that a lot of your have- fans and followers are people who first got to know you from triumph i presume that there are others who got to know you as a, a solo artist but were you ever surprised by i don't know if it's dedication but by by the fact that your fans follow you on the different way the, the different paths that you've taken
0: I think surprise is, is probably a good word, but the better word to describe it would be great gratitude. I'm, I'm, I was just grateful for it, surprised and grateful that, that it was there. And, um, you know, by the time you've made it to 67, there's not necessarily a lot of shit that surprises you anymore. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, honestly, truthfully, um, Because, I mean, come on, Marco, we live in a world right now of Donald Trump and, (laughs) you know, the the, the digital universe, the onslaught of the digital universe, the avalanche of it, like the things that people will do on TikTok, (laughs) you know (laughs) what I mean? Like, come on, like nothing surprises me anymore, you know.
1: You've, you said you were retired, and this is retired from touring. But I presume you're still writing like crazy.
0: Uh, yeah, I'll never retire. And
1: recording. From,
0: yeah, I'll never retire from being creative. Yeah, but I, yes, I, I I don't go on the road anymore. Well, nobody does right now. True. <laughs> yeah. So, but you know, I retired uh, from the road at the beginning of uh, 2019. So I had a year where I was, you know, seeing what it was going to be like. Sort of being on hiatus, and then COVID came along, and that sort of sealed the deal. I kind of went, yeah, well, you know, I'll probably never go back to touring again. I'm, you know, I might go back to playing an occasional thing, somewhere, somehow, but will I? Will I want to gear up to be able to play 90-minute shows? I doubt it.
1: What What do you miss about the playing live aspect, because you're still obviously playing just as much as, I mean, I presume that you're probably still recording and writing as much as you used to. Yes. But what, what is it about not playing that you miss?
0: Um, a, spiritual, live, a spiritual value of communion. Like it literally is like playing live gigs when it was good was like going to church and having communion. You know, it was beautiful. I thought, it wasn't always that great, but when it was great, it was that great, and so I miss that. But do I miss <laughs> going to the airport and checking in, and going to a hotel and checking in, and do I miss carrying my luggage, and do I miss having to do U.S. immigration paperwork every year? Fuck no. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Okay, so you alluded to the fact that you're writing, you're writing a memoir, you're also writing a book of poetry. Um, How is that transition to becoming a writer?
0: Well, the poetry's done and delivered. I mean, I I wrote that in my year off and then into 2020 and delivered that. So that's, you know, I'm going to be in the fall catalog for ECW Press. And that's my commercial. Thank you very much. Um, (laughs) Um,
1: What do you hope to achieve with that poetry book?
0: Uh, wow, uh, it, it was cathartic. So, you know, um, I, I think what I, what I hope to achieve is that maybe people will, like, you know, when Michael Holmes, who's my editor, uh, read it, he said, You know what, this is this deserves to be printed, it deserves to be out, it's good. And I was going, Well, it's the first book of poetry I ever did. He goes, Yeah, but it's good it it deserves to see the light of day so that was a lovely kind of thing to have an experienced writer editor guy say and i think in the end that's why i wrote it <laughs> so that somebody might say wow it's it's good it's it's not bad it's he's actually a poet so that was all it was a self defining kind of thing and what i hope is that people will think the writing is, is decent, is valuable, is, is worthwhile, you know? And, and maybe I'll, I'll get a chance to to write more, you know, and get better at it. You know, that's
1: different approach than writing songs.
0: It was, it was a lot more liberating because songs are so, uh, they have structure and form that you must adhere to, you know, like, your your second verse much must match the phrasing of your first verse, you know, kind of thing. Whereas in poetry, you, you're you're allowed uh, there's a the parameters are sort of deeper and and more they're vague they're more vague, you know, um they're there, you know, you still have to try and, and um and have a discipline to what you're doing. Uh, but it's a different kind of a discipline. It's it's um, and I enjoy. I really enjoyed it. I, I, once I'd sort of discovered, there's a type of poetry called ultra talk, which um, I, when I started reading it, I was going, oh, this is good. I like this. You know, like I think I could get away with this. <laughs> so you know, um, <laughs> that that was kind of the, the the tipping point for me. I had poetry in old lyric books and in old notebooks and things, but like songwriting is very, um, it's, it's, it's the thing that I know. And, uh, so poetry was something that I didn't know. So it was like undiscovered territory. It it was very, um, and enriching, you know, very, very enlightening. So that's why, you know, I did it.
1: (laughs) What is the book called?
0: It's called reinvention and, uh, yeah, I don't know what the memoir will be entitled yet. Uh, and just so you know, there's a, a a members forum on my website, and I've been doing it for almost two decades. And so I told my webmaster, can you give me a document of all of the postings that I've done in the forum so that I could start there? And so when I got that document in Microsoft Word, it was over 5,500 pages, single spaced, 5,500 pages. So it's been an editing job so far. (laughs) Like, you know, writing is often about rewriting, but nevertheless, like I've just been trying to, and I've chiseled it down now. I've got about 1,300 pages right now. And I'm hoping to be able to maybe get it down to about, I don't know, less than 400 would be good, you know probably less than 300 my my editor would be happy you know i don't know but the thing is what i'm realizing is there's more than one book there's a memoir but there's also a songwriting book there's probably one about the music business you know so that's that's what's going on there
1: um you're a very creative person i understand you also paint is that correct
0: yeah, not very often, but I can. I have the ability to do it, uh, and I would not consider myself to be very good at painting. Uh, I, I can sketch. You know, I'm. I. I was a cartoonist for, you know, my school papers in college. I. 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 I did drawings and, and I would do sketches for, uh, Triumph album artwork and stuff, and and work with the artists. Uh, so I, I. You know, I have that ability. But it's just, I, ne- I don't have the time to do that.
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, I wonder how you do find the time to do all that you do. I mean, do you organize it? Is it just based on, today I feel like writing, today I feel like writing a song, today I feel like playing guitar? How does that work?
0: Uh, well, no, I mean, lately I've been, just been a writer, you know, sitting in front of a computer and writing, you know. um. And when I did the poetry, I would... Mostly uh, be in notebooks with a pen writing, and then I would convert it to computer and be writing that way. So uh, I, ha- I haven't been playing a lot of guitar lately. I, you know, I haven't painted anything for, you know, maybe two and a half years. You know, uh little sketches sometimes in a notebook. Like sometimes creativity is such that sometimes it, it kind of jumps up and it bites your ass, you know, and you don't have any choice. You 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 know, I do a little drawing or I, I'm going to write a poem and so, or I'm going to be writing, working on a song lyric a little bit. Like I've probably got five lyrics of songs in my uh, I have a three ring binder where once things have sort of reached a certain point, I'll work in the three ring binder so that I can put it on a music stand and and have it in front of me. And my spiral notebooks can lie flat on music stands in front of me. So sometimes I'll, I'll I'll do that when it's biting me. But right, you know, mostly right now I've been just writing.
1: I'm gonna wrap this up. I I want to thank you for doing this. As You're I said, welcome. it's um it's been a long time. But um, let me ask you one final question. Tell me about your relationship with music, because I know it's a lifelong pursuit. And I don't know if going through these memoirs brings. I don't know, makes makes you more reflective. But tell me about the relationship you've had with music all your life.
0: Uh, well, you know, music is it's the it's the great it's the passport to the universe, you know, it's it's the thing. It's the ineffable, uh aesthetic, beautiful, infinite face of God. That's I would say that.
1: Great. Rick, thank you so much for doing this. It's been a uh, in, in my years of interviewing people, I played music for very short periods in, in my high school and you happen to be one of the few artists that my band plays, so <laughs> uh, it's a thrill. Uh,
0: I'm, I'm happy to hear that.
1: Thank you for doing this and, and really, really appreciate this.
0: You're, you're welcome, sir. Uh, it was my pleasure.